Chapter Five, Part One of Shirley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Shirley, by Charlotte Bronte, Chapter Five, Part One, Hollow's Cottage. Moore's good spirits were still with him when he rose next morning. He and Joe Scott had both spent the night in the mill availing themselves of certain sleeping accommodations producible from recesses in the front and back counting-houses. The master, always an early riser, was up somewhat sooner even than usual. He awoke his man by singing a French song as he made his toilet. "'You're not custom down, then, maister,' cried Joe. "'Not a stiver, mon garçon, which means my lad. Get up, and we'll take a turn through the mill before the hands come in, and I'll explain my future plans. We'll have the machinery yet, Joseph.' "'You never heard of Bruce, perhaps?' "'And there ain't? "'Yes, but I have. "'I read this tree of Scotland, and happen know as much on't as ye, "'and I understand ye to mean to say ye'll persevere.' "'I do.' "'Is there money are you make in your country?' inquired Joe, "'as he folded up his temporary bed and put it away. "'In my country? "'Which is my country? "'What, France, isn't it?' "'Not it, indeed.' The circumstance of the French having seized Antwerp, where I was born, does not make me a Frenchman. Holland, then. I am not a Dutchman. Now you're confounding Antwerp with Amsterdam. Flanders? I scorn the insinuation. Joe, I, a Flemish? Have I a Flemish face? Have I a Flemish face? The clumsy nose standing out, the mean forehead falling back, the pale blue eyes, a fleur de tête. Am I all body and no legs, like a Flamand? "'But you don't know what they're like, those Netherlanders. "'Joe, I'm an Anversois. "'My mother was an Anversoise, though she came of French lineage, "'which is the reason I speak French.' "'But your father were Yorkshire, which makes you a bit Yorkshire, too. "'None of you may say you're akin to us. "'You're so keen on making brass and getting forwards.' "'Joe, you're an impudent dog. "'But I've always been accustomed to a boorish sort of insolence from my youth up. "'The class ouvrière, that is, the working people in Belgium, "'bear themselves brutally towards their employers.' And by brutally, Joe, I mean brutalement, which perhaps, when properly translated, should be roughly. We all speak our minds in this country. Them young parsons and grand folk from London is shocked at our incivility. And we like will enough to give some to be shocked at, cause it's sport to us to watch em turn out the whites of their eed, and spread out their bits of hands like as they're flayed with bogards, and then to hear em say, nipping off their words short like, "'Dear, dear, what savages! How very coarse!' "'You are savages, Joe. You don't suppose you're civilized, do you?' "'Middlin', middlin', Meister. I reckon that us manufacturing lads in North is a dear more intelligent, and now is a good deal more than the farming folk in South. Trade sharpens your wits, and them that's mechanics like me is forced to think.' You know, what with looking after machinery and such like, I've gotten into that way that when I see an effect, I look straight out for cause, and I flick hold on to purpose, and then I like reading, I'm curious to know what them that reckons to govern us aims to do for us and with us, and there's many cute no me, there's many a one among them greasy chaps that smells oil, and among them dyers with blue and black skins that has a long head, I can tell what foil of a law is, as well as ye of old York, and a deal better and a softened like Christopher Sykes of Winbury, a great Hector and Nouts like yon Irish Peter, Hellstone's curate. You think yourself a clever fellow, I know, Scott. Aye, I'm fairish. I could tell cheese for chalk, 
and I'm very weel aware that I've improved such opportunities as I've had. A deal better nor some it reckons to be above me, but there's thousands of Yorkshire that's as good as me, at two, three that's better. You're a great man, you're a sublime fellow, but you're a prig, a conceited noodle with it all, Joe. You need not to think that because you've picked up a little knowledge of practical mathematics, and because you have found out some scantling of the elements of chemistry at the bottom of a dying vat, that therefore you are a neglected man of science, and you need not to suppose that because the course of trade does not always run smooth, and you and such as you are sometimes short of work and of bread, that therefore your class are martyrs, and that the whole form of government under which you live is wrong. And, moreover, you need not for a moment insinuate that the virtues have taken refuge in cottages and wholly abandoned slated houses. Let me tell you, I particularly abominate that sort of trash, because I know so well that human nature is human nature everywhere, whether under tile or thatch, and that in every specimen of human nature that breeds, vice and virtue are ever found blended, in smaller or greater proportions, and that the proportion is not determined by station. I have seen villains who were rich, and I have seen villains who were poor, and I have seen villains who were neither rich nor poor, but who had realized Agar's wish, and lived in fair and modest competency. The clock is going to strike six. Away with you, Joe, and ring the mill-bell. It was now the middle of the month of February. By six o'clock, therefore, dawn was just beginning to steal on night, to penetrate with a pale ray its brown obscurity, and give a demi-translucence to its opaque shadows. Pale enough that ray was on this particular morning. No colour tinged the east, no flush warmed it. To see what a heavy lid day slowly lifted, what a wan glance she flung along the hills, you would have thought the sun's fire quenched in last night's floods. The breath of this morning was chill as its aspect. A raw wind stirred the mass of night-cloud, and showed, as it slowly rose, leaving a colourless, silver-gleaming ring all round the horizon, not blue sky, but a stratum of paler vapour beyond. It had ceased to rain, but the earth was sodden, and the pools and rivulets were full. The mill-windows were alight, the bell still rung loud, and now the little children came running in, in too great a hurry, let us hope, to feel very much nipped by the inclement air and indeed by contrast perhaps the morning appeared rather favourable to them than otherwise for they had often come to their work that winter through snowstorms through heavy rain through hard frost mr moore stood at the entrance to watch them pass he counted them as they went by to those who came rather late he said a word of reprimand which was a little more sharply repeated by joe scott when the lingerers reached the workrooms neither master nor overlooker spoke savagely they were not savage men, either of them, though it appeared both were rigid, for they find a delinquent who came considerably too late. Mr. Moore made him pay his penny down ere he entered, and informed him that the next repetition of the fault would cost him twopence. Rules, no doubt, are necessary in such cases, and coarse and cruel masters will make coarse and cruel rules, which at the time we treat of at least, they use sometimes to enforce tyrannically. But though I describe imperfect characters— Every character in this book will be found to be more or less imperfect, my pen refusing to draw anything in the model line. I have not undertaken to handle degraded or utterly infamous ones. Child torturers, slave masters, and drivers I consign to the hands of jailers. The novelist may be excused from sullying his page with the record of their deeds. Instead, then, of harrowing up my reader's soul and delighting his organ of wonder with effective descriptions of stripes and scourgings, I am happy to be able to inform him that neither Mr. Moore nor his overlooker ever struck a child in their mill. Joe had indeed once very severely flogged a son of his own for telling a lie and persisting in it, but like his employer he was too phlegmatic, too calm, as well as too reasonable a man to make corporal chastisement other than the exception to his treatment of the young. Mr. Moore haunted his mill, his mill-yard, his dye-house, and his warehouse till the sickly dawn strengthened into day. The sun even rose, at least a white disc, clear, tintless, 
and almost chill-looking as ice, peeped over the dark crest of the hill, changed to silver the livid edge of the cloud above it, and looked solemnly down the whole length of the den, or narrow dale, to whose straight bounds we are at present limited. It was eight o'clock, the middle lights were all extinguished, the signal was given for breakfast, the children, released for half an hour from toil, betook themselves to the little tin cans which held their coffee, and to the small baskets which contained their allowance of bread. Let us hope they have enough to eat. It would be a pity were it otherwise. And now at last Mr. Moore quitted the mill-yard and bent his steps to his dwelling-house. It was only a short distance from the factory, but the hedge and high bank on each side of the lane which conducted to it seemed to give it something of the appearance and feeling of seclusion. It was a small whitewashed place, with a green porch over the door. Scanty brown stalks showed in the garden soil near this porch, and likewise beneath the windows, stalks budless and flowerless now, but giving dim prediction of trained and blooming creepers for summer days. A grass plot and borders fronted the cottage. The borders presented only black mould yet, except where, in sheltered nooks, the first shoots of snowdrop or crocus peeped, green as emerald, from the earth. The spring was late. It had been a severe and prolonged winter. The last deep snow had but just disappeared before yesterday's rains. On the hills, indeed, white remnants of it yet gleamed, flecking the hollows and crowning the peaks. The lawn was not verdant, but bleached, as was the grass on the bank and under the hedge in the lane. Three trees, gracefully grouped, rose beside the cottage. They were not lofty, but having no rivals near, they looked well and imposing where they grew. Such was Mr. Moore's home, a snug nest for content and contemplation, but one within which the wings of action and ambition could not long lie folded. Its air of modest comfort seemed to possess no particular attraction for its owner. Instead of entering the house at once, he fetched a spade from a little shed and began to work in the garden. For but a quarter of an hour he dug on uninterrupted— at length, however, a window opened, and a female voice called to him, "Eh bien, tu ne déjeunes pas ce matin?" The answer and the rest of the conversation was in French, but as this is an English book, I shall translate it into English. Is breakfast ready, Hortense? Certainly, it has been ready for half an hour. Then I am ready too. I have a canine hunger. He threw down his spade and entered the house. The narrow passage conducted him to a small parlour, where a breakfast of coffee and bread and butter, with a somewhat odd English accompaniment of stewed pears, was spread on the table. Over these viands presided the lady who had spoken from the window. I must describe her before I go any further. She seemed a little older than Mr. Moore. Perhaps she was thirty-five, tall and proportionately stout. She had very black hair, for the present twisted up in curl-papers, a high colour in her cheeks, a small nose, a pair of little black eyes. The lower part of her face was large in proportion to the upper. Her forehead was small and rather corrugated. She had a fretful, though not an ill-natured, expression of countenance. There was something in her whole appearance one felt inclined to be half-provoked with and half-amused at. The strangest point was her dress, a stuffed petticoat with a striped cotton camisole. The petticoat was short, displaying well a pair of feet and ankles which left much to be desired in the article of symmetry. You will think I have depicted a remarkable slattern reader. Not at all. Hortense Moore, she was Mr. Moore's sister, was a very orderly economical person. The petticoat, camisole, and curl-papers were her morning costume— in which, of forenoons, she had always been accustomed to go her household ways in her own country. She did not choose to adopt English fashions, because she was obliged to live in England. She adhered to her old Belgian modes, quite satisfied that there was a merit in so doing. Mademoiselle had an excellent opinion of herself, an opinion not wholly undeserved, for she possessed some good and sterling qualities, but she rather overestimated the kind and degree of these qualities, and quite left out of the account sundry little defects which accompanied them. You could never have persuaded her that she was a prejudiced and narrow-minded person, that she was too susceptible on the subject of her own dignity and importance, 
and too apt to take offence about trifles. Yet all this was true. However, where her claims to distinction were not opposed, and where her prejudices were not offended, she could be kind and friendly enough. To her two brothers, for there was another Jared Moore besides Robert, she was very much attached. As the sole remaining representatives of their decayed family, the persons of both were almost sacred in her eyes. Of Louis, however, she knew less than of Robert. He had been sent to England when a mere boy, and had received his education at an English school. His education not being such as to adapt him for trade, perhaps, too, his natural bent not inclining him to mercantile pursuits, he had, when the blight of hereditary prospects rendered it necessary for him to push his own fortune, adopted the very arduous and very modest career of a teacher. He had been usher in a school, and was said now to tutor in a private family. Hortense, when she mentioned Louis, described him as having what she called des moyens, but as being too backward and quiet. Her praise of Robert was in a different strain, less qualified. She was very proud of him. She regarded him as the greatest man in Europe. All he said and did was remarkable to her eyes, and she expected others to behold him from the same point of view. Nothing could be more irrational, monstrous, and infamous than opposition from any quarter to Robert, unless it was opposition to herself. End of chapter 5, part 1